Amen. Well, I'm going to get my Bible over here. And uh, thank you very much, uh, Pastor and Mrs. Ingram. I know Pastor Ingram was talking about uh, the GPS. I want to know, tell you this, that um, he may get lost, but I know Christy never does. Okay, so I just want to make that clear. Okay, she's got an internal GPS. That's the rumor on the street anyway. Is that correct, Pastor Ingram? Okay, an internal GPS. Okay, so if you're going to ever go into evangelism, one of you has to have an internal GPS. Okay, because millennials, you know what millennials do? This is going to shock you. You know what millennials do? They have no internal GPS. They just go by the mechanism. You know the danger of that is? The mechanism could be wrong. Did you know that? I heard of a guy, he uh, had a gun in the back of his seat. He was in Michigan, and he was going somewhere in Michigan. He had his GPS going, and you know what? It took him into Canada. Do you know what happens if you, if you have a gun in the back seat when you go into Canada? You get arrested. <laughs> and so he got arrested, and he can never go to Canada again in his life. You know why? Because he's a millennial who trusted his GPS. That's why. Now, that'll preach, friends. I think we ought to preach on that tonight. Okay. I'm just, telling, just teasing with you. I give millennials a hard time. But uh, I'm all for you. I've actually given my life every fall and every other spring. I'm in Christian schools. They're no longer millennials. They're now Gen Zers. I think it's the generation behind that. I thought at the end of Generation Z, the rapture was going to take place because I thought that was the last letter of the alphabet. But um, looks like we got another, I think it's Generation Alpha, I think is what it says. It's coming. They've started over again. But, uh, but anyway, uh, it is a delight to be here. Always is. Appreciate you coming on a Sunday night. And I know the Lord wants to give us something tonight. I'm going to ask you to James 4. We've touched on this passage a couple times today, but I believe the Lord just wants to walk through James chapter number 4. Now, James chapter number 4, I remember my dad preaching, James chapter 4 is a chapter on personal revival. It's a chapter on personal revival. There's no doubt about it, but I'm going to frame it up a little bit uh, different, not in the sense that it's not personal revival, but looking at an aspect of personal revival. I remember I... Uh, uh, I don't know if uh, you can totally relate with this. I know your pastor will be able to, and anybody out here who's ever preached on a regular basis will ever, uh, you, you will a, uh, be able to relate with this. But there are times when you're preaching that you come to a passage of Scripture, and I know this sounds crazy, but you've studied the passage, you've worked on the language, you've gotten all that, and you're preaching, and while you're preaching, God turns on the lights, and you understand in a way you didn't before. I came to James chapter 4 one time and I was preaching through it and it hit me. I was actually preaching at uh, Faith-Based Recovery Program, RU uh, chapter, and uh, I looked at verse number 10 and it hit me. Notice what it says in verse number 10 of James chapter number 4. It says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, help me out now, and he shall lift you up. And I immediately recognized, you know what James 4 is about? How to be restored. Do you know what happens if you've been lifted up? It infers that you've fallen. Do you know you cannot be lifted up if you have not fallen? So it infers that you've been fallen, you've been restored, you're back up. I appreciate so much Brian's testimony a moment ago. And I'm going to tell you right now, I believe there's a purity movement afoot. I believe God's, no, no pun intended there, brother. Okay, I believe uh, there is, uh, God's doing something. I know he's doing something here at Canaan Baptist. I know in other places he's doing something. It's small right now, but there are some Men, even ladies, but particularly men right now who are on the purity journey seeing sustained victory. And it's extremely encouraging to me. And I'm thankful for what God's doing. And the thing I found about, you can always tell somebody who's in sustained victory. Why? I'll tell you how. They're willing to tell their testimony anytime, anywhere. If God tells them to tell it, they'll tell it and not be ashamed of it. I did not finish the testimony of my son-in-law this morning, but I'll kind of finish it because it's going to tie into this in just a moment. But I remember when he gave that testimony in Lisbon, Ohio, and God mightily used this testimony to open it up. And by the way, that youth pastor came forward weeping, got right with God. But not only did he get right with God, pretty soon a lot of men in the church were coming to pastor and say, we got a problem too. He told me that week, he said, we came into that week, he said, preacher, I was looking for a revival, but uh, I had quoted to him a quote by Joe Church. You probably never heard of Joy, Joe Church. How many have ever heard of Roy Hessian? Roy Hessian in Calvary Road. It was Joe Church that influenced Roy Hessian. And Joe Church had just seen the revivals down in Africa, and he came up to England, and he said something to Roy Hessian that absolutely changed his paradigm. At first, he didn't get it. It took him a while to get it. And he said this, revival is not the roof blowing off, it's the bottom falling out. 
And I remember coming to Lisbon, Ohio, and I said, revival is not the roof blowing off, it's the bottom falling out. And the pastor told me later, he said, preacher, he said, what I envisioned this week did not happen. He said, I had a different concept of what I thought was going to happen. But he said, what happened this week was exactly what needed to happen. You know what happened that week? The bottom fell out. And men started getting right with God about some of these moral purity issues. And uh, I know that it's continued to this day, but uh, it was a wonderful thing. But my, uh, back to my son-in-law, of course, at that time, there was no uh, talk between us other than, my, as I mentioned, I think to the men, my wife and had asked him all kinds of questions. We had a lot of travel days, and she had asked him all kinds of questions about his journey back and his recovery. And, and it was, um, again, I said, I don't know there's a, a son-in-law on planet Earth that has been asked more blunt questions by his potential mother-in-law than uh, my son-in-law and my wife. It was unbelievable. And if you don't know my wife, she can ask blunt questions. She can. Sometimes I, my wife will ask a question, I'll say, you don't have to answer that. <laughs> okay, I just kind of qualify things here. Okay, if you want to, you can, but you don't have to answer that. Okay, I'm just telling you, she could ask the blunt questions, and man, she did. But I will tell you that um, uh, God led, uh, I remember after he gave that testimony, the Holy Spirit basically said to me, that young man needs to get married, he needs to get the ministry. And basically God was telling you, you better make a decision if it's your daughter. <laughs> And I'll tell you, God made it clear to me that the man was a different man and God had changed his life and God was going to use him in a purity ministry. And I remember he had said to me, because at this time he didn't think that, pretend, didn't know for sure if my daughter would still be a possibility, but he said to me, he said, how in the world am I ever going to do a purity ministry? How's, how in the world is uh, my wife ever going to be, uh, be able to buy onto that? I said, don't worry about it. I said, God has prepared a woman to do it. And I knew my wife, my daughter could handle it. I just knew she could. God had uniquely made her. And, uh, but anyway, long story is uh, God brought them together. And uh, this is one of the most unusual settings. I'm going to say it just because the rest of the message, you're going to think, what in the world? Their first meeting was on Christmas Eve. They were engaged two weeks later. And that was a word you say, well, that was a world one. No, it wasn't really. If you knew the backstory, it was a two-year wrestling with about it. But once we knew it was God's will, we were on the, we were on the deal. And uh, they connected. But at their wedding, I'm giving this testimony, at their wedding, I remember Ryan insisted that his testimony be given. He insisted. I remember even Pastor Van Gelderen said, are you sure you want to do this? This is your wedding. How would you like at your wedding to give your purity journey? It's your wedding. And uh, I will tell you, I remember we talked to him, and I was not necessarily against it. I was for it, but other people think, you want to do this? It was appropriate. Don't get me wrong. You can go back, watch the videotape. It's online. Uh, you can watch it. But I will tell you, it's appropriate. But I will tell you, he did not want to back up on it. You know why? Because, again, like I said this morning, he's no longer defined by his defeat. He's defined by the sustained victory that Jesus Christ is giving. Amen. And I will tell you, you know a man's in victory when he's not ashamed to tell a story. Because he's not defined by it anymore. And we're going to show you in just a moment, because this ties in. That's why, Brian, I appreciate so much, and I believe appreciate Pastor Ingram. I didn't have anything to do with that, but I believe the Lord has orchestrated that tonight. In a moment, you're going to see why. Because many times, friends, we, 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 how do I say this? I remember years ago in 2005, we wrecked an RV, 35-foot RV. I won't go into the whole story. I may, I may have told it here before. I can't remember. But I remember we talked about that quite a bit, because there were so many miracles in the wreckage of that RV situation. I remember one of my little daughters said to me at the time, Daddy, can't we just stop talking about the wreck? And I remember looking at my daughter and said, the wreck will forever be a part of our lives. It's a part of God's working in our lives. And we'll always, we'll always some, we'll talk about it because it's part of what God did. And uh, so let's go to James chapter number four about how to be restored, how to be lifted up. And I know sometimes when you're in the painful part of dealing with something, and it is extremely painful. I think any of the men who gave testimony of purity journey would tell you it gets rougher before it gets better. I always put it this way. I think I've said it here before, more pain to get less pain. I've got an analogy for that that the baby boomers and older are going to understand. How many remember methylate? You remember methylate? Yeah, back when I was a kid, man, I'd skin my knee, you know how it is. And whenever you hurt yourself when you're a little kid, you make a beeline to mama. You know, because there's something about mothers, they just know how to handle. Kiss the little boo-boo, you know, thing on the knee or whatever. And so I'd come in, and, and after my mother comforted me, she'd go to the medicine cabinet, and I regretted coming to my mother. Because she would pull out of the medicine cabinet, methylate. 
Now, I can't prove this, but I think methylate was just developed by the Gestapo during World War II to torture people. You know what I'm talking about? I think that's what it was. But I'm telling you, she'd paint that methylate on that wound, and I will tell you, for a moment, it stung like fire. But you know why she did that? Because she knew that more pain would lead to less pain. I'm going to tell you, anybody in this room, you start dealing with your sin, it's painful. You can go to Brian, you can go to other men in this room that have dealt with her, it's painful. But it's more pain to get less pain. I mean, let the grace of God put the salt in there so it can heal. And it's a wonderful thing. And then we're going to show you in a moment here just how a remarkably marvelous this is. It is just how the grace of God works. So, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Boy, I'm telling you, I'm pumped up about this one. Hope you're fired up about listening because I'm, I'm pumped up about preaching it. I'm telling you, it always helps when you've got a bunch of sinners in the room. Okay, but anyway, and it gets you fired up, ready to preach. Okay, so here it is. You say, how do you... How do you know there are a bunch of sinners in the room? Well, your preacher's been telling me, no, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. I hadn't said a word. I'm just teasing. Okay, here, James chapter number four. Look what it says. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. I want you to understand, first of all, in a moment when we talk about restoration, why do we need restoration? Because many times I want you to understand there's a battle and we don't always win. Every single one of us has a traitor inside of us. It's the traitor within. The Bible theologically packages that as your flesh. Right here it's called your lusts. You know, there's something about uh, a traitor, particularly in a country, but uh, one thing to have a traitor outside the borders, it's another thing to have a, country, a traitor inside the borders. Anybody of any age remembers the name the Rosenbergs. The Rosenbergs sold to Soviet Russia nuclear secrets. I believe they were the last people to be executed in the United States for treason. They were executed for treason and well should have been. Why? Because what they have done has caused the world problems ever since. They sold nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union. And uh, that's called treason. <laughs> now, I hate to tell you this, friends. Every, bunch, every one of you has the Rosenbergs inside of you. <laughs> You've got a traitor inside of you, and he's out to sell you out. And he wants to destroy your life. And he'll try to betray you and ruin you. You know what it's called? Your flesh. And every time you and I give into our flesh, I will tell you, friends... It's not, not going to help us. We always regret it. Now, I'm not going to preach a message on that except to say we understand the battle with our flesh. But there's another battle mentioned here. Look at verse number four. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Number two, we have an enemy. It's called the world. I remember years ago I was preaching and I preached, I think, on be not conformed to this world or love not the world. And I'm just preaching up the room full of teenagers. And I had one smart aleck teenager come up to me after the message. Now, I'm going to know this is going to shock you, but did you know there are smart aleck teenagers in the world? Did you know that? <laughs> I had a smart aleck teenager come up to me after the message and said, well, the preacher, that pulpit you're preaching from is worldly. And you know what I said to him? No, it's not. It's earthy, but it's not worldly. See, when the Bible's talking about the world, it's talking about that world system that hates God. There's a world system out there that hates God, and its philosophy is always off. It's wrong. I remember as a kid, I'd come home after school, and half the time in the spring, you know what I'd do? I'd turn on WGN. You say, why? Because the Cubs were about the fifth inning. And I'd watch the rest of the ball game. And uh, uh, usually fifth, sixth inning. And one thing about it, usually when I turn on the television, the Cubs were winning. And by the ninth inning, they had lost again. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? I uh, said, so there is an advantage to being a Cubs fan. You learn to cope with disillusionment early in life. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? And, uh, but I remember on those Cubs games, there would be commercials. And at that day, there was a liquor company. I don't think it exists anymore. It was called uh, Schlitz. And it had a slogan. It said this, you only go around once in the life, so get all the gusto you can. Now, may I tell you, friend, that's the world. You know what the world says? The one that dies with the most toys wins. Do you know what God says? This is not original with me. The one that dies with the dirtiest towel wins. That's a little different, isn't it? See, the world has all kinds of philosophies, and honestly, I could preach all, all week long on worldly philosophies, and we wouldn't exhaust them. 
they're all. And that's an enemy. That's another enemy. And people get influenced by it. And particularly if you're not careful on uh, media that you watch, there are a lot of messages that media has that are worldly. They're not biblical thoughts. They're not biblical concepts. And they, now my problem is, if I ever sit down even to watch a so-called good movie, you know, with the kids, and, and way back when we were uh, years ago, maybe on a vacation, we watched something, and uh, my, by the end of that thing, I'm thinking, that's a wrong philosophy, that's a wrong philosophy, that's, a wrong, that's my problem. And, uh, uh, and sometimes those things obviously need to be identified and corrected. But that's the world. It's got all kinds of philosophies that, uh, uh, that affect us. But again, I'm not here to preach on that. But it, so first of all, I want us to see uh, there's a battle. And secondly, I want you to see there's a principle, a very important principle in verses 5 and 6. We touched on it a little bit this morning, uh, men, but let's go ahead and look at this again. It says, do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Now, isn't that a strange verse? The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. Now, if I went into Pastor Ingram's office and grabbed every commentary he had on the book of James, and I read them to you on verse number five, we'd probably, let's say I had 10 commentaries, we'd probably have 10 different takes on what that verse means. It is what they call an interpretational battleground. Commentators say, well, this is what it means, and this is what it means. You get different kind of takes. Uh, I'm going to tell you what I believe it means in light of the context. I believe that talk about the spirit that dwelleth in you, I don't believe that's the human spirit. I believe that's the Holy Spirit. The spirit that dwelleth in you lusteth to envy. The word lust is actually a neutral word in the Greek language. It means desires. Context helps you understand if it's negative desires or positive desires. Now, envy, you say, well, preacher, is that? Well, I want to ask you, uh, let's the idea of envy there is the idea of jealousy. Is jealousy ever godly? And the answer is, yeah, sometimes. I'm telling you, friend. I want you to know something. Jesus has a godly just jealousy over the bride. Can I tell you something, people? Don't ever mess with the bride. Don't mess with the bride or you're going to be in trouble with the groom. You know why? Because he has a godly jealousy. And you know the truth is with everybody in this room, every married man in this room, you ought to have a godly jealousy over your wife. Amen. Somebody starts flirting with your wife, I'm telling you, friends, it's right to be jealous about that. Right. Said, hey, bud, you're not going to do that over my dead body. <laughs> That's one moment. It's like I taught my daughters. I said, now listen, if a guy gets fresh with you, haul off and slap him. You say, preacher, you actually told him to do that? Yeah, I did. I did. I actually did. And one time, one of my daughters did it. Yeah, she was on the, on the playground. A guy started talking dirty to her and vulgar to her. And she looked him in the eye and said, if you don't stop, then I'm going to slap you. She warned him, hauled off, slapped him. The kid fell over. She took her, she had a heel on her, on her thing. She took him and she stepped it in his stomach and he came into his dad crying. You say, you didn't get on your daughter? I said, good job. <laughs> now, I hope you understand. You may not like that. I probably shouldn't have mentioned that publicly here, but anyway. Uh, you know what? I'll tell you, a guy gets fresh, girl, I'll slap, up, slap you up, get some sense knocked into you and stop being, being fresh with women. You should be saving your heart for your future wife. But, uh, but anyway, uh, the um, godly jealousy. See, and I believe what this passage of Scripture is talking about, the Holy Spirit that's in us desires us jealously. Can I say this carefully? The Holy Spirit's pulling for you. You know, how many out here are Atlanta Braves, Falcons, uh, there's another team. Uh, oh, yeah. What is that? Oh, yeah. Hawks. Okay. How many of you are uh, one of those fans or maybe more than one of those teams? Can I raise your hand, please? Yeah. Okay. You're fans. Not a lot of them. Unbelievable. Okay. I thought you'd at least be Braves fans. I mean, you just won the World Series. Okay. Uh, but anyway, uh, have you ever noticed when you're a fan, you jealously pull for your team? You want them to win. You know, when you go to a ball game, what do you do? You cheer them on. You know, and, and uh, even sometimes... When you're watching a ball game on television, what do you do? I mean, it's funny. They can't hear you, but you're cheering them on right there in the living room. Some people I've talked about are serious fans. They actually get involved. It's like, have you ever noticed a serious football fan? When their team's playing, if there's a missed tackle, they end up tackling the furniture. And if you're a Chicago Bears fan, there's a lot of furniture you're tackling because there's a lot of missed tackles. I'm telling you. I mean, that's somebody pulling for their team. Ever been to a soccer game, you know, where a Christian school, high school is playing soccer and somebody rolls the ball right. And I mean, you see, kicks a perfect pass right in for the goal. There's two or three guys that can just tap in the goal. And you see all the parents on the sidelines doing this. 
Like, hit the ball in. What are they doing? They're pulling for their team. They're pulling for their son or daughter. They're pulling for them. Come on. Okay, jealously. Now, it's like this, friends. Can I say this? The Holy Spirit is not just on the sidelines cheering you on. He's inside of you enabling you. So the idea, I believe, here is that the Holy Spirit is jealously desiring our success, our victory, our friendship, our relationship, our fellowship. He's pulling for us. Now you say, why do you believe that? Okay, I'm going to tell you linguistically why I believe that. Verse number 6 it says, but he giveth more grace. Do you know what the word more is in the original language? It's comparative. And I remember reading the commentators and they, they uh, would say, you know, it says comparative, but what's it comparative with? And I thought to myself, it's got to be comparative with verse number five. So what God is saying is the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, he's pulling for us. He jealously desires our success, our, our, our fellowship, our relationship. He's pulling for all of that. But there's more grace than that. See, that's what I believe he's playing, because there has to be a reference to grace before that, and that's the only possibility. So I believe verse 5 is a little bit of an understanding of what grace is, and God says there's more grace than that. And then he gives us a principle. So this is a principle for the rest of the passage, and I want you to see this. It says, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Now, we talked about this for those that were uh, here, I believe, uh, for prayer. And uh, I want to just take a moment talking about that just for a moment. God resists the proud. Now, friends, I use the military illustration because that's the word resist uh, when in the prayer meeting. But I want to go beyond that and use a modern-day picture of resistance. Now, back when I was growing up, I don't know why they do it, don't do it much anymore. But when I was growing up, they named good defenses. In the NFL, they had names like the Doomsday Defense. That was the Dallas Cowboys. The Purple People Eaters, that was the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, there was the Monsters of the Midway, that was Dick Butkus and the Chicago Bears. That's back when the Bears had a defense. And uh, uh, there were, uh, uh, oh, I had Orange Crush defense, that was the Denver Broncos. Anybody tracking with me? Anybody tracking with me? Oh, man, you're not, you're not historic football fans. The Fearsome Foursome. There were four linemen on the uh, Los Angeles Rams. And uh, they have called the fearsome foursome. Okay, so your idea is this. If you were running back and somebody handed you a football and said, go through that fearsome foursome or go through the monsters of the midway, let me just simply say, you would be resisted. <laughs> You'd probably be driven back five yards and be half buried before the play is over. <laughs> but you would be resisted. Now, here's what God is saying. When you and I are dealing with pride, we are resisted. But it goes on and says God gives grace to the humble. Now, I want to take what we talked about at, Sunday's, or, or at the prayer meeting, and I want us to go a little bit further with this. Okay, so let's talk about what is humility versus pride. I want you to show you three things, but I want to develop one that we were dealing with this morning, and I want to go a little further with it because I want you to get the full understanding of this light thing. It's unbelievable. The very first thing I want you to see about humility is humility is honesty, like we talked about this morning, and pride is dishonesty. When you and I act like we're something we're not, or we hide sin in our life and act like we're not addicted to something when we actually are, and we're not uh, in a besetting sin when we actually are, God resists us. Your Christian life doesn't work. So this honesty issue is an issue that is extremely important. Now I want you to show you something about honesty that is stunning. I want you to put your finger right here, and I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 4. I found this a few weeks ago. I've read this passage many times. I've thought to myself, I don't understand this fully. What does it mean? I began to do a little bit of work on it, and I was stunned when it became obvious to me what this passage is saying. There's a passage in Ephesians chapter number 5 that talks about light. And uh, all I want us to start is, let's begin in verse number 8. I want to show you something here. And we're going to go back to James chapter 4. It says, for you were sometimes darkness. That means you used to be darkness. But now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So he's basically saying, you used to be unsaved in darkness. Now you're light in the Lord positionally. So live like it. He's just been talking about a bunch of things that unsaved people do. And he's saying, hey, listen, Christians, don't do what unsaved people do. Don't get involved in this moral impurity of sexual sin. Don't get involved in the things unsaved. Don't be partakers with them because you used to be light, uh, darkness. Now you're light. Live like it. Okay, that's what he's saying. 
Okay, get the context? Now, he continues on here. For time, we'll just go down to verse 11 and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. You see what he's trying to do. He's dealing with the fact that there were Christians who were involved in the works of darkness. We talked about this a little bit this morning. But rather, reprove them. That reprove is not just the idea of verbal reproof. It has the idea of exposing it. So reprove them, confront it, expose it. That's what light does. For it is shame even to speak of those things which are, uh, uh, those things which are done of them in secret. Now, as I began to study that verse, I was amazed that several commentators said, you know, that that verse probably does not mean what we often think it means. And don't get me wrong, it is shameful to talk about certain things that are done in secret, no doubt about it. And when we talk about things that are done in secret, we need to be extremely careful. And that certainly could be a nuance of what that means here. But I like what some of the commentators are saying. It's like this. Whenever you talk about things that you have done in the past that are secret and you come and you get them right, it's shameful. In other words, it's like this. Any person who has ever disclosed their sin, it's hard to do, isn't it? There's a little bit of shame, isn't it? Every one of us in this room that has ever grown spiritually has had, as the Lord has led us, to sometimes just shed light on something and say, I need to talk to you. i got an issue in my life. And sometimes we have to open the door and say, hey, I did this, or I thought this, or I went here, or I said this. And there's shame that comes with that, isn't there? See, I believe that could be what this passage is saying here. And notice this is just amazing. So God's saying it's tough to disclose. It's tough to get honest. It's tough. It's tough to get right with your wife about things that she doesn't know about but has a right to know about. It's tough, teenager, to go to your parents and tell them you've been looking at Internet sites you have no business to look at. It's tough. That's what the verse is saying. Sure, it's tough to do that. But notice what it does. But, okay, it's turning it. Yeah, sure, it's hard to talk about difficulties and problems of the past. But all things that are approved, that idea is again exposed, uh, are made manifest by the light. In other words, yeah, when we come clean, yeah, that's, it, it gets the light shows. Every, you know, it's made manifest. Yeah, this is the issue. But then this verse, the last part of the verse is stunning. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Now, grammatically, what that is saying is whatsoever is being made manifest is light. It's like this. I remember what one commentator, as I studied this, basically said, in the, in the physical realm, we, we don't see that that much. In other words, if we had all the lights off here and you had a flashlight and you shined it on the pulpit, the pulpit would not turn into a light bulb. But that's what the language is saying. Whatsoever you shine light on becomes light. Now, that does not happen in the physical realm, except that I, had a, I was preaching this last week, and a man came up to me and said, well, the moon, when the sun shines on it, it turns into light. I thought, you know, that's a pretty good analogy, isn't it? Yeah, the sun shines on the moon, and all of a sudden the moon becomes a light bulb. So that's the best illustration I can think of in the physical realm. But in the spiritual realm, what God is saying is this. When you shine light on your sin, the sin becomes light. Hey, preacher, what are you talking about? Well, we just had an illustration of it. I have found this to be true. When somebody gets up and gives a testimony about past failure, the failure is no longer brings darkness, it brings light. Do you know what happens? I see it all the time. And Brother Ingram, your pastor can attest to this as well. When teenagers step up and they give testimonies of the junk they've been doing, do you know what it does? It shines light into the whole student body. And do you know what happens? There starts to be conviction of things that have been hidden. Isn't that amazing? The works of darkness, when you shine light on them, turn around and give light of conviction to other people. That's the power of a testimony. So that's what you say, why in the world would you let your son-in-law give a testimony of his failure at his wedding? Because I knew it would be a light bulb. You have no idea how many people have come to me and said, that was the most unusual wedding I've ever heard. And it impacted them and impacted others. Why? Because his failure of the past, because he shined light on it, appropriately so, has become light. Think of it. Every dark thing you've done, we're ashamed of. What God is saying is when you appropriately give testimony, and there's an appropriate way. There's some things we've got to be careful of. I get that. But what God is saying is that when you shine light on something, it becomes light. I remember in um, Florida, I was um, 
we were having a testimony service. It was supposed to be a class period, 45 minutes. And uh, I knew God had worked that week. I, didn't, I thought 45 minutes. We probably will fill that with 45 minutes. I'll never forget that testimony service. Early in the testimony service, a kid who had really thoroughly got right with God, cleared the deck, had major issues of viewing um, things that were inappropriate, gets up and gives a testimony. And I'm telling you, he had his jaw set. He said, I'm done. He said, I'm done with it. He said, I don't want that junk anymore in my life. He said, I want it out. And I mean, it was one of those testimonies like God was on it. As soon as he gave that testimony, I'll never forget, I looked on the front row. This is a student body of 150, and I saw a senior, literally, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this. He, his face was grimaced, his, his, his hands were clenched, and he, just, he, he was literally in a wrestling match. That testimony service went for two hours. Most of the testimony service, at least the last hour, were kids coming to the microphone, don't miss this, getting right with God as they gave testimony. The principal in the back was writing down names and brief things on his computer because he knew they had so much follow-up to do because so many kids had gotten right with God at the microphone. Now, why did that happen? I'm going to tell you why. Because early in the testimony, somebody shined light. And whatever you shine light on becomes light. That's what the passage is saying. And I don't know about you, that's stunning. It's really a stunning truth. It's a remarkable truth. And yet I've seen it so many times, it's such a blessing. Okay, so let's go back to James chapter number 4. James chapter number 4. And uh, let's continue to march through this. Hebrews, James back here, number 4. And uh, let's look uh, at back to... Um, I lost my page here. I'm the one that told you to put a finger in it. I lost my spot. Okay, here we are. Okay, God resisteth the proud, giveth grace unto the humble. The first issue is honesty versus dishonesty. And I'm just encouraging you. Allow just whatever God's doing in your heart. Okay, honesty versus dishonesty. Number two is dependence versus independence. Pride is I don't need God. I can do this. I, can, I, I don't need help. And humility is, I need help. I need God, first of all, and I need help. I need the church. I need God's people. I need help. And so that's the second aspect. A lot more could be said there. That's where accountability would come in. That's where dependence upon God would come in. There'd be so many truths there, but I want to just continue on. So I think we kind of dealt with that a little bit. And the next one is basically uh, the third idea of pride versus humility is humility is selflessness. And pride is selfishness. Humility is, it's not about me. It's not about me at all. And pride is, it is about me. That's why we keep quiet. That's why we don't depend on God. That's why we don't, you know, etc. Okay, so uh, much more we could say there, but, uh, but uh, that's the principle. So if we don't get a hold of the principle, the pathway is where we're going to conclude here. The third point is the pathway. And I want us to look at uh, verses, it's literally verses not, uh, 8 down through verse number 10. Uh, actually, 7 through 10. Now, I hate to tell you this because I'm going to panic you, but if verses 7 to 10, there are 10, there are 10 commands. You think, you mean, you preacher, you got a 10-point message? No, I actually don't. But mingled among those 10 commands are three future tenses. Now, let me teach you uh, a phenomenon that occurs in the Greek language that occurs in English, so it's easy to get. Okay, if I was cleaning, or uh, uh, let's say one Saturday, my dad comes to me. This did not happen, but let's just say it did. My dad comes to me and says, Jim, Jim, clean your room, and we'll go to Dairy Queen. Now, cleaning my room is not an option. That was a command. Do you get me? It's not like, well, I don't want to go to Dairy Queen. I won't clean my room. No, no, no. God's, uh, my dad said clean my room. So that's a command. Clean your room and we'll go to Dairy Queen. Okay, so what does that mean? If I clean my room, guess what we're going to do? We are going to go to Dairy Queen. See, that's what's happening here in this passage of Scripture. God's saying, do this and here's what will happen. Do this, and here's what will happen. So really, verse, uh, many, I've heard many people preach a 10-point message from verses 7 to 10, and I actually don't think it's a 10-point uh, message. It's a three-point message. So there are three subpoints here. Number one, now, by the way, each one of the future tenses has movement. Each one has movement. The first one, the devil's getting out. The second one, God's moving in. The third one, we're lifted up. 
So each present tense has important movement, one with God, one with the devil, and one with us. So this is how to be restored. You know what happens in restoration? The devil goes, God moves in, and he lifts us up. That's what happens in restoration. So let's look at these three important things. The first one has two commands before the future, the present, uh, uh, the future tense. Look, if you would please, at verse number seven. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and what is God's promise? And the devil will flee. Now, I want you to see this. This is not hard to get. Submit yourself, therefore, to God means get under God's authority. See, submit's an authority word, isn't it? In other words, get under God's authority and basically saying, God, I don't know what your will is necessarily. I do know some of it, don't know all of it. But God, whatever you want, that's what I want. And then you're saying, you're basically, I don't talk to the devil. I talk to God about the devil. I'd say, I don't want Satan's will. God, I don't want Satan's will. I want your will. And you know what God says? The devil's got to go. None of us in this room have to fear Satan. None of us do. You know why? If you're completely surrendered to God's will, in Jesus' name you can say, I don't want the devil's will and he's got to go. And I will tell you sometimes, friends, uh, Christians can make really bad decisions and I'm telling you the devil can start wreaking havoc with you. But you don't need to fear him because if you're saved, there's a way out. Now, let me illustrate this way. I may have given this before, I can't remember, but I'm going to tell you, I hesitate to give this story because it's a spooky story. I wouldn't probably do it while the kids were in here, but it is a spooky story, but it's true. I uh, remember it was several years ago, I was in Florida, and while I was there, there was um, a youth pastor came to me and said, Brother Van Gelderen, he said, I've got a 25-year-old 25 25 preacher's kid. He's away from God. He's messed up. He wants to talk to you after the service. He said, I'm not sure what he wants to talk to you about, uh, but will you talk to him? I said, yeah, sure. I'll be glad to. He said, now I know him. I'll sit in with you so you don't have to worry, but I'll sit in. He was actually semi-related to him or somewhat related to him. And, and so I said, okay, sounds good. And so after the service, this 25-year-old kid sits down and I'm telling you, he had the marks of the world. You could have never guessed he was a preacher's kid. I mean, the hair, the jewelry, the tattoos, just the marks of the world all over him. He sat down and I said, how can I help you? He said, preacher, he said, man, he said, a few nights ago, he said, my girlfriend and I were trying to go to sleep. And he said, all of a sudden there was a knock at the bedroom door. He said, there's only one problem. No one else is in our apartment. And he's freaked out while he's telling me this, you know, like shaking. He says, I went to the bedroom door, opened the door, checked the apartment. Nobody's in the apartment. He said, I come back in. He said, we try to go to sleep again. He said, he said, listen, I'm a little more freaked out. Get up, open the door. Nothing there. Check the apartment. Nobody's there. So now we're kind of rattled. Try to go to sleep one more time. Knock at the door. He said, this time I went to the bedroom door. He said, I opened the door. He said, I took out my cell phone. He said, I'd heard somewhere that if it's a demon or demonic activity, if you took a picture of it, you could see on the picture the demonic activity. Now, let me just tell you ahead of time, that's not in the Bible. I just want you to know that that's not in the Bible. Okay. He said, I framed up the door frame, and he said, I took a picture. And he handed the cell phone to me, and he said, Brother Van Gelder, or Preacher, this is the picture. He didn't know my name. I'm going to tell you, when I saw that picture, the hair stood up on the back of my neck. Because in that doorframe was a being. Looked like an eighth grade girl. And she was human in the sense of proportion and look. But her eye sockets were missing. Now, she was translucent. You could see through her. You could see the living room behind her. There was sock, eye sockets missing, just holes her hair was more like straw. It was not something I've ever seen on any human being. It was like straw blonde. And her face was pitted in a way I've never seen an eight-year-old's face pitted. But it was pitted with like acne type thing. And he looked at me. He was a preacher's kid. He understood the Bible enough to know that he, he realized this is a demon. And he said, preacher, he said, can you help me? Now, at that moment, I'm thinking, now, what class was that? Now, which class dealt with that? Was that pastoral theology? I'm, I, I literally, I was going through thinking, now, what class dealt with it? And you know what I came to the conclusion pretty fast? No class had prepared me for this. And I'm sitting there racing through the mind and thinking, how can I help him? And it was like the Lord spoke this into my heart, James 4, 7. 
James 4, 7. I looked at him and I said, I think I can help you. I said, if you are willing to totally submit to God, you can resist the devil and he's got to get out of there. I said, now let's start talking about areas you're not submitted to God in. I said, that girl you're living with, are you married? No, we're not. I said, you need to move out. You're in, you're in fornication. You're in adultery. You're in sin. You need to move out tonight. And here's what he said to me. No way, preacher, man. I'm not moving out. I looked him in the eye and I said this. I cannot help you. And neither can God. And he was livid. He left me in great anger. You know what he wanted to do? He wanted to get rid of the devil on his terms, but that's not how you get rid of the devil. You can only get rid of the devil on God's terms. And God's terms is, you better be completely surrendered to me because I'm the only one that can get rid of the devil. And I will tell you, I won't say this young person, I don't care who you are, you cannot say yes to the devil and no to the devil at the same time. You can't do it. If you're looking at filth or you've got some underhanded stuff going on or if you're lying or cheating over here, you cannot resist the devil because you can't say yes to the devil and no to the devil at the same time. Just can't do it. You cannot do it. So if you want the devil, what happens in restoration is you've got to get rid of the devil's influence in your life. You say, preacher, how do you do that? It's not rocket science. You basically say, Jesus, whatever your will is, that's what I want. And I mean it. And then whatever the devil wants, I don't want it in Jesus' name. And you know what? He's got to go. Isn't that great? That's not too hard, is it? Well, it's not hard to understand. <laughs> okay, so first of all, there has to be, that's the first step. The second one is found in verse number 8. Draw nigh to God, and here's the future tense, and he will draw nigh to you. So the second one is God's move. So the first one is devil out. Second one is God moves in. Okay, we're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus. And of course, I've said this before, and I deal with this with these particular issues, but I'm telling you, friends, and I mean this, anybody who ever has got besetting sin in their life, one of the key issues to getting out is an intimate, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. It's key, absolutely critical. That's what the verse is saying. Now, the best way to illustrate this, I'm going to use a really corny illustration, but you won't forget it. Back when I was a kid, my mother used to take me shopping. Now, don't get me wrong. I dearly loved my mother, even though she took me shopping. You know what I'm talking about? I'm telling you, my mother would try on every dress in the shop. I'm thinking, and then she'd leave with nothing. You know what I'm talking about? I think we just wasted two hours. But my mom would take me, one of her favorite places was Montgomery Ward. How many remember Montgomery Ward? These are the very old people, but very smart people in the room. Okay, yes, Montgomery Ward. And you know what I'd find if I went along? I'd have to entertain myself for a few hours. So, preacher, you say, what would you do? Well, one thing about Montgomery Ward was this, mirrors. Remember the old department stores? They had walls of mirrors. And every once in a while, some of them were warped, and you'd really have a lot of fun with the warped ones. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, so uh, you'd start off a little ways away from the department store, mirrors, and there you are. You could see yourself way down there. And I'm going to tell you, friends, this is going to change your life. Listen, this, it's going to change your life. I take a step toward the mirror. This is going to shock you. And the guy in the mirror would take a step toward me. <laughs> then I take another step toward the mirror. And the guy in the mirror would take a step toward me. And before long, we're standing nose to nose. Now, you're sitting out here saying, come on, preacher. You know, you all know I'm being facetious. But I don't want, I don't want you to miss this. God is more predictable than the mirror. You know, none of us are shocked when we take a step toward the mirror and hit the guy. None of us are. But sometimes we get a shock when we take a step toward God and he takes a step toward us. My friend, God is saying, listen, draw nigh to God. Hunger for God. Seek God. I've preached whole messages here on this subject matter. And in just a few minutes, I really can't do, deal with it except to say, man, you've got to, listen, you want to be restored? You've got to deal with the devil, but you also got to deal with God. And the idea with God is, God, I want you. I don't care what it takes. I want to have an intimate relationship with you, God. And here's what God says. You seek him, you will find him. Draw nigh to him, he'll draw nigh to you. I'm telling you, friends, if you want to have a relationship with God, you can. But if you can live without God, you can do that too. Now, the fourth, third thing, the third future tense, let's go look at it. 
Third future tense says, uh, cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. We talked about this in the morning message for you men. Be afflicted in mourning, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Now, there's seven commands here. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, is basically what I'm going to say, getting right about your outward sins. Be like the kid that one gave a testimony in Phoenix, Arizona, and one gone down to Walmart and confessed to the manager that he'd been shoplifting. You know what he was doing? Cleansing his hands. It's about the kid. I have this happen almost every week. Sits down with his teacher and say, oh, by the way, I've been cheating in your class. You know what they're doing? Cleansing their hands. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. The Bible says shame to them to speak those things they've done in secret. It's hard. Those that sit down with mom and dad and say, mom and dad, I've been sneaking behind your back. Yeah, I've been watching movies you wouldn't want me to watch. Listen to music you don't want me to listen to. Look at the things on the internet you wouldn't want me to listen to or look at. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? You know, I see that almost every week. You know what kids are doing? Cleansing their hands, cleansing their hands. So the first thing God says, you better deal with your outward stuff. But secondly, he says, purify your hearts, dealing with the inward sins. It says ye double-minded. If you know anything about the book of James, it defines double-minded in the first chapter. You know who a double-minded man is? He's unstable in all his ways. It's somebody who believes God, then doubts God. Believes God, then doubts God. Believes God, then doubts God. In other words, he's got a problem with unbelief. Have you ever noticed that the core of every sin you and I commit is unbelief? You've got to deal with your inward sin. Which, bottom line, always goes back to unbelief. Got to deal with the inward sins. And then notice, if you would please, he gives a string of puzzling commands. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself on the side of the Lord and he shall lift you up. You say, what do you think that means? I really believe it means this. If you will do the first two things, cleanse your hands, deal with the outward sins, purify your heart, deal with the inward sins, then God will do such a work in your heart that the next five things will, I hate to say automatically happen, but they just happen. I've found it to be so true. So often, since I remember a kid just a few, this was just a few months ago, we're in West Virginia, kid comes forward and got, he was torn up. I said, what's going on? He said, I'm a thief. I said, who are you stealing from? My younger brother. I said, is he in this school? He said, yeah, he is. I said, okay. You ready to get right? Yeah, I'm in. Okay. Went to the principal and said, could you get so-and-so? He goes down the hallway to the fourth grade, pick up a fourth grade kid, that poor kid. We should have warned him. The kid came in with big eyes like this, like, what did I do? I said to the fourth grader, I said, you're not in trouble. Just have a seat here. Your brother has got something he wants to tell you. I looked at the kid. I said, tell him. Do you know what happened to that older kid, the junior high, high school kid? I can't remember. He's probably about eighth, ninth grade. He began to weep. He began to sob. And he said, I've been stealing from you. Would you forgive me? See what happens when you start cleansing your hands? You're afflicted, you weep, your laughter will be turned to mourning, there'll be a brokenness. You try to get broken without dealing with your sin, it's not going to happen. It's just a remarkable thing. Because when people start to get right with their God on their things, God begins to do a cleansing work. I will tell you, the mourning, the weeping, the afflicted, the, it's even, even I, my son-in-law's testimony, and other men who've come out of this will tell you that, man, sometimes that first week or two or whatever is painful. There are more tears than there are times where there's no tears. Just weeping, mourning, but God uses that. It's cleansing. It's God's methylate. I, uh, I remember several years ago a young man telling me his story and he, his home was a decent home but it had some difficult things happen, more circumstantial than dysfunction. And As a result, he began to get in the early days of the internet pornography issue and of course it was bad, it's always bad, but it's obviously gotten worse with other uh, techn technology. But he got into it and was basically hooked. Got in early, like 10, 11 and, and got in, just was hooked. He was the kind of kid that would get broken about it, but he'd never th thoroughly deal with it, and that's often what happens. It's a cycle, getting right, going back, getting right, because they're never taking the full step to be, like we talked about this morning, get fully right with the, uh, the people. And, and he was kind of in a cycle of defeat. And, and, and his senior year of high school, he knew God had called him to preach. I know this sounds strange. He knew God had called him to preach, and he was going to go to a, a college, and he made a decision that I thought was probably the decision that rescued him. He said, you know what? He said, there are a lot of colleges out there who are Christian colleges, but they're kind of easy, loosey-goosey on the rules. 
He said, I want to go to a Christian college that is strict. So he began looking for the strictest Christian college he could find because he knew he needed it. Well, he went off to Bible college and he began to see victory while he was in Bible college. Stunned him. Sustained victory. But the only problem was he'd go home, failure. Christmas time, failure. Then go back, confess it to the dean of men, have some victory, and then boom, go home in summertime, failure. Well, after a while, I had a little bit of that early college years, and then he began to get in sustained victory where he'd go home and there would be no failure. And he was excited. Got into seminary and continued to cycle and sustain victory, and he thought, it's in the past, it's done. I'm not going to struggle with this anymore, which is always a danger. Always a danger. Said, yeah, I got, met a young lady, I got engaged, it was a wonderful thing, and uh, heading toward marriage, all things, looks great. And, and he said he was working on a project, and he uh, went to some file, some photo file, and unfortunately, he began to pursue things. He made a choice. It wasn't just coming across it, he made choices to click on things he shouldn't have clicked on, and he had a failure that he had not had in at least two years. It, of course, devastated him. And he knew what he had to do. He had enough sense to know, I'm going to have to call my future father-in-law. He called his future father-in-law, and his future father-in-law was silent on the other end of the line. And finally, he said, um, I'm going to have to pray about this. He said, we may have to postpone the wedding. And he said, actually, we may have to cancel it, which were very wise words. This young man testified that he hung up the phone. I think that was on a midweek, and his future father-in-law said, I'll call you back on Friday. So two or three days. He said he hung up the phone. He said for the next two or three days, he said, I could hardly eat. I could hardly sleep. He said all day long, he said, I would weep, and I would mourn. And I realized I was about to lose the most precious thing that God had ever given me outside of my salvation. So two or three days, he said, it wasn't long before I hated that sin like I had never hated it before. So with great trepidation, he said, I wouldn't go to work. I couldn't concentrate on work. He said, all I could do is mourn and weep before Almighty God. That Friday, the phone rang with great trepidation. He picked up the phone knowing that it was this potential future father-in-law picked up the phone, and his father-in-law said, I've been praying about this. And he said, I believe God wants us to go ahead with the wedding. That has probably been, I would say, 10 to 15 years. I'd have to do the math. It could be longer than that, but 10 to 15 years ago. Married and in the ministry. And he has told me this. He said, Brother Van Gelder, I'm careful. I have the guards. I do everything I need to. But he said, I can honestly say this. I have never been tempted to do it again. I've never been tempted to look again. There's other temptations in his life, but he said that one on the internet, internet pornography, he said, I've never been tempted again. Can I say this carefully? He's been restored. My son-in-law said this, and I've heard a testimony of another young man. You know what they testify of? Don't miss this. Divine forgetfulness. They cannot even remember all the images that used to be emblazoned on their brain. All I can tell you, friend, is humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He'll lift you up. You want to know how to be restored? It's right here, James chapter 4. Could I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed?